This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Welcome to another episode of the Get Fast podcast. In today's episode, we are joined by ex-Olympic athlete from the 1996 Atlanta Games and our dual ex-5,000 metre Australian champion and 10,000 metre champion, Julian Painter. Jules, this is the second time on the podcast. Welcome back. Yeah, I feel pretty privileged there, Jordy. to get called back, I must have done something right the first time. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're really looking forward to today's chat because we're going to be chatting all about week two of the Olympics, and that was mostly dominated by the athletics, or at least in our eyes, it was dominated by the athletics. I couldn't have watched any more Olympics if I tried, and I know, Dad, you were the same, so we're all uh, raring to get into this conversation. Dad, welcome to the episode. Thanks, Jordan. I think there'll be a few swimmers out there who'd be a little bit aggrieved at what you just said. Um, uh, I think the swimmers did a reasonable job with uh, with their success. So, yeah, look, it's all things Olympics, and that's going to be great to talk to someone who's been there and done that themselves. Jules, uh, good to have you on board, mate. No, it's good. And a bit of an, a bit of an in-joke is always that um, the swimming and all that's still part of the opening ceremony, and the Olympics <laughs> only actually starts when, when track and field commences. So. <laughs> I agree with that. And, yeah, we are going to focus on week two. Uh, in this episode, Dad, we gave the swimmers their time to shine in the last episode, so we get <laughs> enough about them. All right. And I, I just want to start by talking about the Olympics as a whole and, and how special the event is. And Jules, I want to get your thoughts on this because uh, on the last day yesterday, Channel 7 did a bit of a montage. And uh, of course, it was very well put together, very well edited. They had some emotional music showing all the highlights and the lowlights of the Olympics because it's made up of uh, both ends of the spectrum. And it was quite emotional and it got to the point where uh, they got to Andrew Gaze who was speaking about uh, the Boomers bronze medal and he couldn't hold back his emotion when speaking about it and I'm sure we'll touch on that in this episode as well but when he was speaking I just it really hit me how special the event was and how much it just brings communities together no matter what sport it is uh, the whole world kind of comes together and sometimes there can be a rhetoric around the world that you know sport is trivial and oh it's just sport what does it matter you know whereas what does it matter in, in the grand scheme of uh, real world issues, you know, politics or business or the economy? And uh, I think the opposite. I think sport is something that really brings communities together, really brings families together, countries together. And it uh, creates this once in a four year unique event, which is the Olympics, which literally brings together the most amount of cultures in the world to compete, to uh, get to know each other. And Jules, I know in your experience, to uh, meet each other in the Olympic Village. So uh, from that perspective, I just think. There is something so magical about the Olympics and that was really highlighted when you really look at the last two weeks. It's just such an amazing event to, to watch for two weeks straight. Yeah, it's such a concentration, Jordi. I mean, the, the, the world coming together for a two-week period across so many different sports. And I think it didn't matter what sport it was. If an Aussie was in it and they were giving it a red-hot crack, we were glued to the television. Um, and that's all we expect to see. And I think that's the real spirit of the Aussies, when they're there and they're competing, um, you know, they're just giving it a red-hot crack and that's what everyone wants to see. Um, I think the world coming together in such a time, um, especially this one, is quite special. I know, you know, I'm sure if you went back and asked everyone that voted in, in Japan about not having the Olympics, I'd probably say most of them probably have changed their mind, um, not to sort of discredit, you know, why they voted the way they were sort of indicating not to have them on, but mm -hmm. I think... I think the crowds that were on the road when the marathon was on indicated public support and just how special the Olympics were and how privileged the um, Japanese were to hold it, maybe not in the way they wanted to, but I think, you know, kudos to them to put it on. Um, there was no major dramas um, in terms of the protocols. It would have been very difficult for the athletes um, and all the teams to get there. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there were some amazing results over the two-week period. Absolutely agree. So let's let's dive straight into some of the athletics and we can talk about any other sports uh, we feel like, but we're going to focus mainly on the athletics, uh, which yep. all three of us just love. And honestly, sometimes I feel a bit like Bruce uh, when I'm watching the athletics, you know, giddy with excitement. He can't contain himself in some of the events and I'm sitting there and my housemates are going, oh, what about this person? And I say, well, they did this at this uh, event. They had this result and they're expected to get this in this finish. Um, yep. And it's, it's so good. So, I mean, I want to start with Honestly, I think my favorite performance of the Olympics, and it wasn't actually a medal, um, but I just, I had goosebumps watching this uh, performance and I was so amped up. It was a late night performance. I think it was at 10 o'clock. I was so amped up. I couldn't sleep for a couple of hours. I had so much adrenaline 
and that was Peter Bowles' uh, 800 final. Yeah. And um, watching his preparation, I think I watched every single one of his lead-up races, and he just he's always so grounded in all his interviews in the lead-up races. He was uh, very much just uh, of the attitude that he wants to keep staying consistent, slowly get better. You know, his attitude was he was a 145 runner, um, and he wants to be a consistent one, 144 runner and then get up to that level where the guy's running 143 around the world and just measured in his approach. And that just came through in the Olympic Games so much. And for him to make that final and run as gutsy as he did, um, and I think the whole country got around him, that for me was just such a special performance. Uh, it was. I think you know everyone got to learn a lot about Peter Bowl. Um, the story of Peter Bowl to get to the Olympics is, is an amazing story, not only the Olympics, just to for his life, you know, the opportunities he's been given uh, coming to Australia. Um, you know, it, it's sort of quite documented, you know, him and um, I think it's um, Patrick Ding, I think the other 800-metre runner, they, they were looking for accommodation, couldn't find it, and, um, you know, Bill Shorten stepped in and helped them out um, in terms of support um, for them in the Maribyrnong area. So I think there's lots of stories like that, the support, um, you know, the, the amount of people that you saw on television that were, you know, watching um, Peter Bowl run his 800-metre final, that whole family, it was almost like an entire village that squeezed into a room to watch. Um, but it, I think it's also the way he ran it. Um, you know, he, he, they sort of knew a plan uh, that if it was going to be slow and he was on the front, mm. so be it. And he, he took it on. He, he led them um, and led that Olympic final. So he wasn't there making up the numbers and yeah. he, he left it all out in the track and, um, you know, he was looking over his shoulder and I was so glad he didn't get swamped and he still got fourth and he held him off. But, you know, he, he was leading that 800-metre final and, you know, that's, there's not been an 800-metre finalist for 43 years. Mm. Um, and that's not because we didn't have good runners, but that's just how cut and throat it is. And yeah. I often think, you know, what would swimming be like if there was no lanes? Mm. You know what I mean? Like if somebody gets chopped or somebody gets kicked in the face or something like in a swimming race, I mean, that's what happens in running where... Um, mm. it's, it, it's not a time trial. You can be in a good mm. position and, and you just get a bump or somebody mm. out of no fault of your own, somebody falls in front of you um, and then that's all of a sudden you're out. So there's a bit of luck that goes through it, but I think Peter Bowl in the final, you know, he made his own luck and it was a superb performance. We, we talk a lot of, in our podcasts about execution and, and uh, being a racer um, and, you know, this is a championship event and, and things change from – from qualifying to championship races where, you know, in, to get the qualifying time, you actually have to run, you know, with good execution to get to the time that's required mm. to get into the Olympics. And then you have to absolutely change your whole race plan around it's a championship race and anything can happen. And I love the way the Australian athletes took on. You just look across whether it was the girls in the 1500. Um, him and the, the two guys in the 800, both of them in the 800, both in the 1500, um, the 5K guys, um, you know, even, you know, um, who was it who, who was struggling up the last straight? Um, Pat Tien and, yeah. Pat Tien. And, and that was my, that was what, Jordan, you mentioned your favourite. I just thought that epitomised the Aussie spirit of, like, I don't know if anybody saw, but he also fell over in the back straight uh, before mm. he got to the front straight. So he'd already fallen over once. And, and he fell over in the front straight and he pretty much got back up and walked across the finish line and set a PB. That's how far he'd gone into the, into the, the dark zone. And he was 9,600 metres into a race with the best in the world. Mm. And you can't, you know, people think, oh, well, he didn't finish very strong. But he, he gave himself every opportunity, gave it a crack. I, that's what came across to me. This is the first time. You know, I always feel like we're making the numbers up in athletics, but this to me, we have a new breed of of athlete who, who is almost saying, stuff you, I'm good enough to be at the front, setting the pace or not being knocked over. It, it was, it, I loved it. It was, it was the best athletics I've watched in, you know, since I saw Ralph DeBell win in 1968 at Mexico as a nine-year-old. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'll never forget that. That was, that was you know, incredible. Uh, and it's never, you know, we've never had a runner like it, uh, success like that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Do you have any more comments on that, Jules? Or? No, I, th I think that was, I mean, we'll run through, you know, a number of the events, but I think that's what shone through. The, the vast majority of the athletic team and or track and field team 
um, they all competed at, a, at a, um, either best or um, you know close to their best performances. And you know it's such a competitive sport. I think if you compare the number of nations that win medals and that compete in athletics compared to other sports at the Olympics, it's it's a totally different ballgame. Um, so just the, the width and breadth of, of the number of countries that compete, um, it, it's it's immense. So, you know, there's not too many other sports at the Olympics where you've got multiple African nations um, all lining up against you. Mm. So, and, and that, that just brings in a whole you know, aspect of, that's not there in a lot of other sports. Mm. That is such a good point. And, yeah, that just highlights how good, you know, Peter Bowl fourth in the world. Yeah, just unbelievable. So, I mean, that was my favourite moment. Jules, what was your favourite moment in the athletics? It could have been that. If that... <laughs> uh, I think we've already touched on it. I, I think Patrick Tiernan uh, finishing that 10K. I mean, I, I was pumped for him, you know, going into the bell lap. I, I thought he might have been finishing in top 10. I mean, they were on a fast pace. Um, and that was the thing at the Olympics. It was, it was very fast. There wasn't that many, like what we call championship races, where it was, mm-hmm. you know, slow. And then a kick home. It were, most of the races were pretty quick. Mm. Um, and, I mean, he's running against guys that have run 26-11. You know, they're, they're just out of this world how yeah. fast they're going. So, but he was, he was right there. Um, you know, with a lap to go, there's 10 or 11 of them there. There's only one other American. And the, the rest are all African. And so he's the, um, uh, the, you know, the, the big white man um, in, in amongst them all. And he was there and then pretty much the wheels fell off in that last sort of 250 metres. And you sort of saw that images of him collapsing and getting across the line and, and he just he absolutely gave it everything. And I think that set the tone for everyone else in the athletic mm. team um, to see that and see that performance. is like, well, what are you willing to do? And uh, I sort of certainly felt that that came out across a lot of performances. Dad, did you have another uh, special moment that stood out to you? Yeah, look, I suppose I... We did talk about it, I think, already, and I um, loved. Uh, is it Jess Fox, the paddler? And it's it's yep. it's not in athletics, but but it still stood out to me. Three Olympics, um, you're you've bronzed and silvered. You've never won gold. You're lining up for your third Olympics. You are the last starter on the start line. Um, the camera's looking at you. Everybody's finished. You've got to now try and beat the whole field. You're you're expected to win. But how much pressure would have been on her? And she executed the best race of her career to win that gold medal. And it had taken her since 2012 to get to that point. So to me, that was that epitomized the 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 ability of someone to stay true to the plan and to, to remain focused. And the pressure would have been incredible, Jules. You've been to the Olympics. You know what it's like to stand there on the start line and imagine what faced her, the failures she'd had. And, and they're not failures. That, that, you know, that she wants to win the gold medal and she's won bronze and silver, but they're not failures. But uh, you know, her, her epitome of what she was trying to achieve, she hadn't got there yet. I just think that was really outstanding. Yeah, I think the key there and I think some mindset, I can't remember who it was There was an interview during the Olympics, but is if somebody else is better, so be it. But if I do my best, the, the result will be what it is. And, you know, so not being afraid, so not mm. thinking about making mistakes, just just concentrate on doing the best you can. And if it comes out your second, third, fourth, whatever, but as long as you know that you've done your absolute best and you've left nothing behind. I mean, she was pretty frustrated. I think it was in the um, the canoe final. I think that's the one that she sort of, you know, missed, missed or got a bronze and then, you know, in the kayak, which was she was one of the people that really fought for that event to get into the Olympics. Yes. It was the first time it was in the Olympics. It's been in the men's program for a number of um, Olympiads, but um, you know she's fought for it to get in, and then she's you know um, world champ, and she's come down and, and delivered. So that um, is, yeah, that is that is such a good point, and that is so important for athletes to hear. If you're ever nervous about um, a race coming up, then exactly what you're saying, Jules, take the, take the result out of it, take the stake out of it and just focus back on your execution. And if that's good enough, so be it. I just think that is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you become too results focused, it just, it, it can be detrimental. Mm. So I find, I mean, that's something that I sort of take in. 
Absolutely. So let's move through the distances kind of chronologically. So uh, let's go to the 1500 next. What were your thoughts across the both the men's and women's in the 1500? Because it was unbelievable to have four Aussies across the men's and women's final, two in each final. I just, like Dad said before, it's so good to see Aussies on the forefront and not just making up the numbers. Yeah, I was, I was probably my only disappointment was Jai Edwards didn't get through the heats in the 1500. I think um, he was probably more set up to be a championship runner with a faster finish. He's got a faster finish than I think Ollie Hoare or um, Stewie McSwain, but he just got caught up in a bit of rough and tumble in his heat, um, mm. missed qualification, so he was out. Um, really admired Ollie Hoare and um, Stewie in their semifinals. I mean, Stewie just, he took it on. I mean, he just laid it all down. He didn't. He was going to make sure he knew what the previous mm. semi-final had run. He knew what he had to run, and at worst, if he finished seventh, he would have made it, made it through to the final. Mm-hmm. Um, so he just laid it all down. So I think that takes um, you know, big kahunas to you know, 300 metres to go to be sort of absolutely going full stink um, to, and with the threat that you're not going to make the Olympic final. And he was probably one of the people most spoken about um, in the leader. Um, and then in the final, the men's, um, I think it was just an exceptionally fast race. Inga Britson always looked pretty in control. Um, I think the, the, the pace uh, for Stewie was, was pretty hot, um, but it probably because it wasn't as fast quick um, early. So then it you know, became a bit of a push and, and um, he sort of hung on and I mean, got what, about fifth, I think, in the end. So, the, um, uh, you know, a fantastic result. And, and Ollie Hoare... Um, you know, another great result as well. So um, for them to both make the finals, pretty special. Um, the women, I think, you know, Lyndon and, and Jess Hull, you know, they, they both, you know, competed exceptional to make it through to the final. And they weren't just making up numbers. They weren't trailing off and finishing 80 metres behind. They were mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, they ran a national record in, in the qualifying to make the final. So, um, you know, so Jess beat Lyndon Hall's, you know, ran 358. I mean, that's amazing. Even the men, I mean, they were fast. You know, mm. I think Stewie ran 3.31 to get into mm. the final and, you know, I don't think any of them ran over 3.34 um, until the final, um, which sort of was a little bit slower um, early but then came home fast. So I think re- really exciting um, for, for all of those. And I think in men's 15, you know, there's, there's still another handful of guys out there that are, are running pretty quick as well. So um, mm. it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next um, sort of three years. It will be interesting too, Jules. That's a great point. And uh, that really augurs well with all of the other athletes watching on. They must get inspired by seeing, and, you know, we've been to PB meets in summer here and I, I'm amazed at how many young young female athletes are taken to the track and, and you know, 17, 18-year-old uh, boys joining in the PB meets. And, and when they see success from Aussies in the international field at the highest level, it must inspire them. And grow the sport, and and that's that's the thing that I'm loving about about the Olympics, and and you know it really gives people. You know, I read something today about uh, Brad McGee, um, you know, being inspired by what he saw at the 1980 uh, eight Olympics in 1992, and and he ended up winning a gold medal at Sydney, you know, just mm-hmm. because he saw something and he thought oh, I could do that. And there must be so many you know, young boys and girls out there who see this happening now and, you know, Brisbane coming in 2032 is, is mm. something aspirational for them and here we have the talent. Um, it's it's just that, you know, it hasn't – and I think the PB meet, you know, is exploding around uh, the, the nation at the moment is is the way to get people um, to start improving because they've got the competition. That's, that's what we've lacked for so many years. Oh, I think that's true. I think it's not only, I mean, you can have all these athletes, but I think it's getting them to compete. And I think that's what Stewie McSwain does. He leads by example. He competes a lot. Um, I know that's the philosophy that Nick Badeau has, um, you know, and that goes way back to Cathy Freeman. I mean, she would do multiple events at A grade um, as part of her training. And, you know, Stewie was running down in Tassie. They run in the pro meets. Um, they do a lot of running and competing and use that racing it mightn't be at the same level, but they, it's a bit like out hard hitouts. They use it as, as training, as a bit of a um, you know, threshold session. I asked Geordie Williams, who we've had on the podcast before, who's uh, trains with Stewie McSwain and under coach Nick Bodeau. Uh, I asked him what he thought of the final and how he thought Stewie went. 
because he spends you know a lot of hours with him each week. And he just said that, yeah, because it was so fast, um, the race did suit him in the final, but he probably just ran out of legs because he'd had to run so hard in the semi. And that was his choice to run as hard as he possibly could to guarantee himself a spot in the final, but it probably cost him a little bit. Um, mm. Just when the pace really kicked up, he couldn't go with them in that final. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's where I think Stewie just. I mean, he's, he's running body fast, way faster than I, I ran. But but um, I'd I'd be uh, my prediction right here right now is he'll win a medal in the five k in Paris. Mm. So, mm. so I think he's he probably avoided the five k in Tokyo. I'm I'm only assuming this. I've not heard anything, but I just think the heat would have been. Mm. Assuming the heat would have been too much of an impact for it, run the 15s and get through. Um, but I, I think he'll he'll win a medal in the 5K in Paris. Moving up the chain, we'll we'll, move, we'll talk about the 5000. That's one of your pet events. And again, uh, both men's and women's were uh, great races. Um, and in the 5K, chipped a guy just too strong. Yeah, he was. I mean, he's he's come stepped down from the um, 10 and and still was you know too good. Um, you know, you've got Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, you know, Morocco, um, you know, Qatar. Um, and then there's sometimes there's a heap of other Africans that are running for, you know, Belgium, Netherlands, yep. you know, <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, he, he just he ran really well, ran really strong and, uh, again, you know, a pretty quick time. Um, so... I, I personally, uh, I was rooting for Katia just because I'd watched a lot of him in the Diamond League meetups and mm-hmm. I really liked the way he races, uh, but he was absolutely nowhere. And it was his, um, for, I think it was one of his first full years on the international circuit. So maybe just that lack of experience. Uh, but we did see the heat have a big impact in both the 5K and 10K. Uh, yeah. But I wanted to touch on uh, the American Chip Limo because, Dad, you and I watched him in the uh, mm-hmm. American Championships, and you might have as well, Jules, where he was running really dirty and... Um, in the last hundred of the kick, where it was a sprint finish, he ended up in lane four because he kept pushing out the other athletes. And I hate it when runners do that, where they just go wider and wider. It's like they're not confident enough that they're going to beat them in a sprint, so they push them wider. And he did pretty much a similar thing uh, in the Olympics. And I don't know why it doesn't get caught up more. Um, I just thought his, his last lap was dirty. It left a real bad taste in my mouth for him getting bronze. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, they'll do whatever it takes. I mean, that's sort of he's not chopping anyone off. He's just making pushing people wide. and. Um, if you sort of know he's going to do that, you sort of try and be in front of him before you come in off the last bend. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's, he's not stepping on anyone's heels or anything like that, but I, I'd sort of say if he's chopping other people, that would be a, mm. more of a concern. Well, it works because he's been successful at, two, at the last two Olympics. Yeah. He's got two medals, a gold and a bronze. So. Yeah. Mm. So, um, in the women's front, uh, we had Hassan, who was attempting the 1500, 5K, and 10K triple. Yeah. Um, and we didn't touch on it in the 1500, but um, you said before the podcast, you know, she fell in her heat and then had to do a um, 400 meter PB, it looked like, to catch back up. And she qualified for the final, which was when I saw her kick like that, I thought she can't lose anything with a kick like that. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, go on. I, I think, yeah, it was a pretty remarkable day where, you know, she fell with a bit under a lap to go and then she's had to run, I don't know what a split was, it was certainly sub-60. Um, and in that heat as well, it's quite a hot day from memory um, that morning. Um, mm. And she, you know, did it pretty easy, but that takes it out of you and then you've got to run a 5K that night and but she made it look pretty easy in the um, 5K final. Yeah, she, and she was just too strong in the 10K as well. I mean, her last 100 metre looked like a sprint. You know, yeah, it was. I mean, she got um, she got shown up by the Kenyan in the women's fifteen final, but um, but yeah, you know, it was a tremendous result, a tremendous program for her. Two gold medals and a silver—it's nothing to be, <laughs> no, <laughs> especially in those events. Yeah, it was yeah. a standout performance, wasn't it? Really. Yep. One of the next ones I want to touch on, which uh, was a standout for me, and if it wasn't for Peter Boll, I would say this had the big, the most significant impact on me uh, watching this event was actually both the men's and women's 400-meter hurdles. Um, again, I just happened to be watching a lot of the 400-meter uh, hurdle races leading up to the Games and watched Sydney McLaughlin break the world record at the American um, Olympic qualifications and watched the Norwegian Viking um, I can't even remember his first name. Carsten Varham, is it? That's, yeah, Varham. Yeah, Varham, yeah. Break the world record in Norway in, in the Diamond League leading up. Um, 
And these two races were just exceptional. And um, I had a similar reaction to Tams and Lewis in the commentary when it happened. She kind of screamed into the microphone because she couldn't believe what she just saw. And I was similar. It was just such a freakish kind of Superman kind of performance. And um, yeah, both those races with the top two um, in each race, really battling it out, just stood out for me as one of the highlights of the Olympics. No, they were, they were great races. I real I think that real head-to-head really made it. Um, I think in uh, I think their times in the men's and women's, their winning times would have got them through the first round heats in the mm. 400 metres. Um, you know, so take the hurdles out of it. You know, they're still running fast enough to quite get through the heats to semifinals in the mm. 400. 44.94, Iran in the final, and 45.94. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, 45. Yeah. Under, yeah. yeah so there were. You know, guys struggling to do that in the flat race. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, even the guy that came second, I think he ran, what, 46.15 or something, mm. which was, I mean, they're, they're leaving guys like Edward Moses, who was a phenomenal athlete. He's like 20 metres behind him. Yeah. You know, yeah well. So I think um, that and, you know, the women as well, I think that head-to-head competition in that final um, really pushed Three them. Three of them. I think mm. it was the kind of conditions where it's nice and hot there. Um, it's it's good for hurdling and good for sprinting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both the men's and women's, the first, first, second has been a battle consistently. And in the women's, there was a third runner as well who hadn't been beaten uh, in a year or something or two years. And mm. uh, in the men's, all three broke the world record. I mean, imagine breaking the world record and coming third. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. What else do I have to do? And yeah. I guess you, you can't complain like, exactly what you said before, Jules. It's like, well, that was my best effort. I broke the world record. I can't be unhappy with, with third. No, that's right. I think if you've laid it all down and, and you know, you walk off the track, yeah, you with a right goal, but if you know that you've done the absolute best and you've run a PB, then um, you've got to be pretty happy with yourself. And on that note, we are seeing a lot of fast times being run and this topic got brought up in a Travelo group of ours uh, a couple of weeks ago where um, looking at shoe technology, it is having an impact on race performances and you're a big believer that it is impacting a lot of the faster times at the moment. Um Explain to us some of your thoughts on that because I hear that and I go, well, I think it's great because, um, you know, we have seen um, a pretty a bit of stagnation in, you know, world records and results maybe for um, the last decade or two um, and then now to see some times being broken and even if it is due to more shoe technology, at least maybe it gives us some confidence that it's not because of doping, you know. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, as long as it's, it's an even playing field, I yeah. think if it's, you know, within the parameters and they're, they're legal, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, you see the, the track and the conditions that the athletes are running on, it's a bit different to when they last ran at Tokyo, you know, in terms of, you know, a Cinder's track or anything mm. like that. So, um, you know, that technology, the technology in shoes, even before this last round of um, this sort of carbon-plated um, shoes, um, you know, it, it makes a big difference. So I think that's fine if they're all, they're all able to use it. And I think... Um, but the other thing that if you notice, and I'm talking amongst a group of friends while the Olympics were on, was certainly seeing a lot more lower leg injuries. So mm. you sort of saw a number of athletes that had taping on their lower legs mm. um, in terms of, you know, um, you know Genevieve Gregson did her Achilles. Achilles. Just how many people are getting more lower leg injuries because of the shoes? Some of them, the stability is not as good. Um, so it, it would just be interesting over time with more time to sort of see um, what the impacts are. Have you have you tried the shoes at all, Jules? Have you, no, um, yeah. no, no. I, it's funny, a, a friend of mine went for a run and he, I think his wife had bought him, bought him a pair and yeah, he, he clipped along at a nice pace and I made a comment on Strava and, and he sort of came back and goes, mate, what we would have run if we had these shoes. <laughs> um, so it's pretty, pretty amazing. But in terms of um, they certainly look, especially the, um, the longer distance shoes, but you're seeing a lot more people running five and 10 K and they're, they're running in runners. They're not running in spikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I tried my first pair um, last year, end of last year. And I yeah, cannot believe the difference it makes. And uh, it, it feels like you're being sprung forward and I can mm. understand why some lower leg injuries might happen because it, it feels a little bit unnatural. And so I've tried to really just keep it for races or um, tough training sessions that I want to yeah. do it in, but I'm really not trying not to do too many K's in them. Cause I, do have a little bit of that fear because it, it's it's quite unnatural how much it propels you forward. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is I mean, in a um, I think I did the calculation for somebody to sort of say, okay, if it if it improves your um, time by one percent, that, that's twelve seconds in a in a five k. Mm. 
Mm. That's, mm. that's, you know, that's a significant, that's, that's a mm. significant amount. And, and um, you know, 1% in, um, in the, you know, 1,500. So that's 15 metres. Mm. You know, that's, that's, that's the difference between you know, making a final and not. But if everyone's wearing them, then that's, yeah. that's fine. And there'll be yep. particular runners with particular, you know, foot strike and that, that might get a little bit more out of them. But um, I, I don't have too much of a problem if, if everyone's doing it. Um, and also it's the same in, in sort of implements and things like that with world records and stuff like, you know, the javelin where they change the, the midpoint weight of it and it brings it back to sort of pull the, the distance that, that they're throwing back, you know, just the mm. same as the technology of the shoes will, will make people run faster and so long as it gets to a certain limit um, and, you know, you've not got full-on springs on the bottom there, um, yeah, you're pretty right. And they have got those limits in because the shoes that Kipchoge ran to break two hours for the marathon in that um, illegal mm. attempt in quotation marks, it was not counted as a proper world record. It was just to see if he, a human could actually do it. They are illegal in competition. So yep. there's, a, yeah, there's a few steps of the Nike kind of vapor flies and the very top ones are illegal in competition and some of the levels below are legal. And But then you're right, it is becoming more more of an even playing field because ASICs have brought out their own version of a similar shoe and more shoe companies uh, are getting involved. And I guess one of the arguments against it is that you want to compare, you know, error to error, but it's just impossible because there's so many, so many advances in technology in all areas. So well, I think um, technology, but I think also just the science behind yeah. what gets an athlete onto the field, you know, the difference in nutrition, the difference in recovery, um, you know, the difference in the surfaces they're running on. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole heap of additional elements that go into it nowadays mm. that just wasn't there in the past. So. The ability to be paid well as a professional athlete and just focus on training is probably yeah, a big yeah. one. <laughs> that always makes a bit of a uh, thing. But, you know, a lot of uh, – it's the thing. A lot of the athletes that you sort of see um, at the Olympics, you know, some are, are definitely professionals and making a lot of money, but there's a lot of athletes that, that aren't. Mm. Liam, Liam Adams is the classic, isn't it? The electrician. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's talk about the marathon. It's It's – it's the event, isn't it? I mean, the Olympics, the marathon epitomizes the Olympics. And to see Kip Choby, you know, do the double four years, five years apart, you know, mm. or as Jules and I were talking earlier, um, you know, putting them to the sword at exactly the same time, you know, two Olympics in a row. It was, it was fantastic to watch. I think, you know, with Kip Choby, he's, he's the GOAT. Like he is in terms of the marathon, um, his performances are exceptional at championship level, and let alone how fast he's run. But he, even if he, even if he stopped his running career before he became a marathoner, he had an exceptional five k. Mm. Um, you know, so he's been a medalist at world championships. He was running against Gabriel Selassie and and um, El Garouj. Uh, so he's a guy that's done that, and he's moved up into the marathon. And you know, he runs two hundred eight thirty eight in that heat as well, and just you know, clipping along at sort of you know, low 15s, then you sort of see the pace just pick up to about a 15.07 and then bang, there's a 14.28. And, and there, we were looking at the splits going, is that right, 14.28? Mm. You know, it looked like he was moving and he's just his cadence and he's, he just looked comfortable, um, which is amazing because you can't appreciate how hot and humid that was. We had a friend on course and he was giving us the, the, um, uh, the updates in terms of the weather, but then also we're looking at the splits and you're seeing – guys like you know gallum rupp that was right there and then all of a sudden he's off um and you know dropping back and it just became and he finished eighth so there's people in the top 10 that were pretty much outside that top sort of four runners a lot of them it was uh, you know survival to get to the line mm -hmm. and there's a long a long list of, of did not finish and you saw runners just running along and all of a sudden you know almost going into a head spin and, and just pulling out and there's a lot to be said for uh, execution on those days and understanding the conditions and understanding your ability. And I really thought Liam Adams ran a, a very, very well-executed race. At one stage with, I think, 12K to go, he was 60-something, and he, and he finished 24th or 25th. And I, I thought that was outstanding. Yeah, I mean, he still ran 215 mm -hmm. in that sort of uh, weather condition. So that, that's quite exceptional. It really does epitomise um, the Olympics, I think, as it's such an old-school event, the marathon, and to see the carnage crossing the line, just summarise what you're saying, Jules, if the conditions were just that brutal that athletes were just sprawled out all over the place and really just crawling over the line, um, and yeah. they, were, they were flying in, you know, they weren't coming in slow. <laughs> yeah, and that's the nature of the Olympic marathon. If, you know, go back and Barcelona was hot, 
Um, you know, certainly Atlanta was hot. Sydney um, was one of the ones where it was probably a cooler condition, but I think they certainly ran faster here than they did in, in Sydney. Athens was hot. Beijing was hot. Um, you know, London was okay. And Rio was hot. So mm. you sort of got a lot of really hot, um, mm. you know, conditions for running an Olympic marathon. It was interesting watching uh, the battle for the silver and bronze, uh, the, the three guys battling for two medals. And uh, I was astounded to see the guy cheering his his countrymen from a, and he was representing a different country um, against the Kenyan. What's your take on that? That was hilarious, I thought. Yeah, I think just tried different training partners. I mean, they obviously trained together and um, they were pretty keen to sort of get across the line just as, you know, supporting one another, um, let alone that one was running, I think, for Belgium, one was for, for Holland. Um, so I think that was a, a great result for them. And I don't think there was too much love loss with uh, Chirono, who they beat across the line. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty bizarre kind of last 100 metres. And to, I sort of expected a 5,000 or 10,000 metre style kick where they really just went, but you, could, you knew they were on their limit when the pace barely increased. The sprint finish was just... The most, the slightest of increases in pace, and you forget that how gone their legs must be. That there's just no way they're going to be able to push any more than that at the end. Yeah, and then they had Toronto on the front there for the last couple of kilometres as well, so they made him work for it and just mm. um, and roll, rolled over him. Yeah. Taking it back to the track, uh, I want to touch on a couple more Aussies, and one is in the high jump, Nicola McDermott with the silver medal, a very well deserved silver medal. Um, Performance was excellent, uh, but I want to hone in on something I think you'll love, Dad, which is a um, pre-jump routine, same routine every time, gets, gets her in the mode to do that jump. And then more importantly, everyone knows about her post-routine, which is assessing your performance and writing in the diary. And you just put so much emphasis on that, is that you have to assess every result, good or bad, to see what you can learn from. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think what I'd ask anyone is grab a tape measure and measure out two metres too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's what we were doing the other night with, with the boys. We were sitting here watching the television and, and the long jump qualifications were on and we grabbed out the tape measure and I just measured out eight metres <laughs> and, and just measure that out. And you go, how is somebody to measure that? And then literally then the men's high jump was on. We put up you know, two metres 30 on the wall, but even two metres two. Yeah. Um, you see, they've got to get over that. It's, yeah. not just, you know, it's not like a basketball ring. You just jump up and touch. touch it's it, yeah. actually... You got to get your whole body over it and um, and you know, not not knock off the bar. So um, quite quite exceptional. Um, you know, it's fantastic that we've got a couple of you know really top class um, high jumpers. Um, Eleanor Patterson, a good Gippsland girl. So um, you know she was in the final as well, and, and it was a great result. And I think again, um, you know, following a routine, um, not getting flustered, and you could tell that she was extremely happy. Um, in terms of her own performance. Wasn't worried about what the Russian was doing or anything. Just concentrate on what I do because it doesn't matter what the Russian does, it's not going to impact what I do. Yeah, there's so many good uh, positive things about that. And watching all the field events, it is very much a mind game um, because there's so much time between your execution of your actual turn. So as a discus thrower, as a javelin thrower, as a shot putter, as a high jumper, there's so much think time between, mm. um, and if you let the emotion take you on a bad journey, you, you could underperform. And I was, I was so wrapped away. All the Aussie field uh, athletes performed, and they seemed to be really in a good headspace. And and especially the javelin, I don't remember her her name, but we had three, we had three finalists mm. in the javelin. And Kelsey she, Kelsey Barber is that her name? Yep, she's yeah. the Kelsey world, Barber world and, champion. Um, uh, I think the girl Little from Sydney that um, yes. pretty much come out of lockdown. Yeah, um, and you know, so. and like she got herself a medal um, with her last throw. Um, mm. You know that that takes guts and and a really good mindset and and concentrating in the moment and executing your best your best effort and and getting everything out of your mind and and we saw that time and time again and and it's different to a track race where you know the gun goes and it's it's. It's confusion the whole time, and the person who can hold their hold their head can can you know manage their way and navigate their way to a good outcome. Whereas there's so much time. The high jump takes you know two and a half three hours of of uh, mm. you know doing your jump and then waiting. Um, waiting, yeah. And it's not a consistent wait either because obviously you know you might clear a height first attempt and there's a whole raft of 
people that take multiple attempts to, to clear their um, clear their um, height. So we're in the long jump, it's a little bit more consistent, but um, but the high jump, pole vault, you can be out there for a hell of a long time between between efforts. This is why I love athletics and um, I do love both track and field, although I lean more to track, but uh, I loved my housemates' reaction to the whole athletics event because obviously I was watching every event and they would come in and, and watch as many as they could and uh, every event just seemed unique to them. And uh, every time there was a new event on, they'd say, is this the weirdest event in track and field? Because there are some, definitely some weird events. You know, the high jump itself is just who thought of that? Who thought of the, the Frosby flop or, you know, mm. of that way to get over? And then you see the pole vault and you go, this is an extreme event. And then even the triple jump, it's just such a, a weird motion um, and the tactics involved in all the track events. Um, and with all those events combined, I know, Jules, that you wanted to talk about Ash Maloney's bronze, the duathlon. Uh, you know, the decathlon. Decathlon, sorry, decathlon. Did, did, did not 10 decathlon. events, not decathlon. two. Yeah, yeah, my um, bad, decathlon. <laughs> I, I've had one prediction about Stewie McSwain winning um, a medal at, in the 5,000 when we get to um, uh, Paris. I'm, I'm tipping a gold medal for Ash Maloney. Like, if he is in one piece and, and keeps progressing, you've got a 21-year-old, that's, and it takes a huge amount of strength, you know, and you look at the physique of the guy that won Warner uh, from Canada, and you look at Ash Maloney, and he still looks a bit of a boy. Mm. I mean, he's 21, but, uh, you know, what, a, what an athlete. He runs 10.34 for the 100, um, you know, jumps 7 metres 64 for the long jump, um, jumps 2 metres 11 uh, in the high jump. And then, and, and I think, you yeah, know, throwing, I think there's a, um, a discus there on the first day as well, but then runs 46.2 yeah. for 400 for the first day. And it's can hurdle. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. yeah, I mean, 14-second hurdle nearly breaks, you know, 14 seconds for 110 hurdles. Pole vault's five, you know, five metres. And then you see him run the 1,500. Um, and it looks, it always looks funny when you see the athletes run on, but mm. he still ran 4.38. So he's running, you know, just over three-minute kilometre pace. Yeah. Um, and then his teammate, Cedric Dubler, um, you know, yeah, he's screaming in his ears to sort of pick up the pace and he, he comes home in the last 200 and, and um, closes the gap enough and doesn't lose enough points to, to lose the bronze. So, um, you know, a fantastic result. What he's done at, at 21 years of age in the, the, the decathlon is, is really exciting and it's a, it's a brutal sport. Like, you know, doing one event, but let alone 10 in um, two days. And talk about, um, you know, mindset. There's, you've got two full days mm. um, where they're, um, you know, they're out there. Um, so it's a, a tremendous effort. Yeah, look, the athlete who can not lose the plot is probably the one who, you know, you've got to be talented, obviously, in all disciplines. But his, you know, his calmness at 21, and and I think he performed a lot of PBs um, along that journey uh, to get to that, which you just you just got to take your hat off to say, you know, chapeau, well done, unbelievable. Yeah. I think a big advantage was having his teammate out there who they trained together with. So mm. it's like, imagine, you know, you've got, one of your best friends, training partners, um, one of the guys that you've sort of really idolised, um, they're with you and you're working together as a team. So as mm. much as they're all competing against one another, but they're just trying to post the best personal scores. And you're spot on. The, the nature of them being that good across so many events is just, uh, it's really hard to comprehend because they, they're not just pretty good at them all. They're, they're really at an elite standard, almost an Olympic standard for all these events. I mean, the guy that won, um, his 100-metre sprint was 10.14 or something. It was yeah. as fast as all the 100-metre sprinters in the in the actual Olympics. Um, yeah. And I'm glad you corrected me on the duathlon because even in my notes, I, I wrote duathlon. I've just got duathlons in my mind because we've got a few coming up. But it's, it's definitely the right. decathlon and <laughs> not the duathlon. Um, but, I mean, to finish off with, there are so many highs associated with the Olympics. We see so many good stories and there are equally just as many devastating stories. And we had a few in the athletics and yeah, we did want to talk about them because they're important to talk about because it's a natural process that any athlete will go through, whether it be injury, uh, just a devastating performance under preparation, something can happen that will uh, leave you in tears compared to elation. Yeah. And I think that's it. I think, you know, whether or not it's anything to do with the footwear or anything like that, but Genevieve Gregson, um, rupturing her Achilles in the in the steeple, um, you know, heartbreaking. Um, I think, the, you know, the low, as much as we sort of said it was gritty, but I'm sure Patrick Tiernan didn't sort of think he'd finish the way he did um, in that. But out of that, you know, that was a, a truly gritty performance that will sort of, you know, be in everyone's memory for a long period of time. Mm. Um, I think, you know, even in the track cycling, you know, Alex Porter, you know, crashing like that, um, you know, took real courage to get back on the bike. 
Mm. Um, Catriona Bissett in the 800, you know, was certainly running plenty of sub twos and then um, just didn't quite have it or didn't run the um, race that she would have liked in the, um, in the 800 metres. Um, and then probably, you know, Jack Rayner in the, in the marathon uh, comes in with a bit of a, a stress reaction in the leg apparently and um, that's the, the luck or misfortune of it all. Um, you come into the Olympics, you know, fingers crossed that it's going to pan out that way, but, you know, he didn't last too long, so which is, uh, you know, bitterly disappointing for him as well. So as much as there's, you know, all highs, um, there's a lot of lows as well. Um, you know, the Matildas getting knocked out or, um, you know, the Opals not progressing, um, lots of that. So there's, and that's that's the Olympics, is that just how big and special it is. It's once every four years. Mm. Um, they don't have a chance to redeem themselves next week or next year. It's luckily they've only got three years, but it's it's a four-year program. So, um, and whether or not, you know, luck is, is on their side, that they're fit enough and well enough to sort of qualify and get into another Olympic um, Games. And look, that, that sort of summarises why I think it was so extraordinary what Jess Fox did from 2012 to 16 to, to 2021. You know, that is exactly what you said. There's so many lows in her journey and to finish off with the high, it, you know, that, that's what a lot of the people listening, you know, it's not going to turn out 100% the first time. Mm. If it does, I'll, I'll use Jordan as an example. He's played senior football for two years. <laughs> And and in those two years, he's won two premierships. I mean, how many footballers can say that? Guys play 50 years and they don't get a premiership. But that's just, you know, fortune to, to have that happen. But but they're, they're the highs, but the lows, for, you know, can be years and years of toiling and, and, uh, and having, you know, unlucky things happen to you, injury or illness or poor form at the wrong time. You know, it, it does take a really good... Um, set of events for you to actually get to the best outcome on the day that it counts um, the most. And and there's not many people who can do that. And, you know, it, for every race that's run at the Olympics, there's only one winner. And everybody else in the race has has not succeeded in, in you know, winning the race. So, so, you know, as you said earlier, I, I think that's important for us to understand that not only is your personal best one of the main things to, to, to aspire to, um, but also the journey of, you know, how, how you're doing it, how you're getting there and, and, the, and the things you're learning about yourself and, and others around you and, and come race day or, or whatever, you know, you're working towards, that's, that's not all that counts. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, getting yourself prepared properly and giving yourself the best chance to, to actually do a PB. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it, it's a combination of so many things, Jerry. I think it's a lot of planning, um, you know, being confident and um, also being very lucky. Uh, so I think, you know, getting there and, and there'll be a lot of athletes that will be already, you know, circling the dates that they think they're going to be competing on in 2024 and working backwards from there. So um, there's a lot of work that will be done, but, um, you know, we'll, life will go on and who knows what, what the world will be like in, in 2024, but hopefully we can get over there and, and watch some of it. One last thing on, on that note, I'd like to ask you both as an athlete, when you have these major setbacks or disappointments, how do you personally pick yourself back up and go again? You go, Jules. Um, for me, it's all about perspective, Geordie. Um, you know, like I was hoping that, you know, after making 96, I was in good shape in 99 and I would, I would go to the 2000 Olympics and um, in, injuries sort of worked out that that was, it didn't happen. And then pretty much about a, with less than a year after the Olympics, it pretty much reoccurred. And so my running career was over. And, and it's having perspective that, you know, I don't worry about what I didn't do. I just worry about what I did do. So I was very fortunate and lucky to um, get to one Olympics um, and, you know, quite amazing. And, and put it in perspective that if the worst thing in my life is that I didn't get to go to my second or third Olympics, I'm doing all right. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, that's something that sort of sticks with me is, I know stories of other people, you know, in, in terms of not just sport but in life in general that, um, you know, they've, they've got a lot more to deal with than what I have to. So it's always being um, put things in perspective. And I know I say this to Jerry out on the bike and you have problems and you've got a flat battery or something like that. I go, well, Eddie Merckx didn't have to deal with that. So, <laughs> you know, so we've sort of got to put things in and what, um, uh, you know, in, in our house here we always sort of say, oh, is that really a first world problem? 
you know, if, if the ice cream's not, you know, hard enough or cold enough or, <laughs> yeah. you know, anything like that. But um, I, I think it's just putting things in perspective and, and um, yeah, being real around what, what it actually is and what you're doing. And I think, um, uh, who was it? That, I, think, you know, um, I think Mike Powell or somebody like that, you know, back in the day, long jumper, he says, I get paid a lot of money to run and jump into sand. Um, so it's the same, you know, back in the day, I was very fortunate to, um, you know, live a life of just going for a run. Um, so, you know, I think it's that just keeping things in perspective, what's really important and then, and then things that are sort of uh, nice to do. Perfect answer. Fantastic. It's a bit hard to follow up on that one, I reckon. Um, but for me, um, I just think the journey is more, is so much more important. I've said it so many times. I just love the journey and there's always going to be probably 99% of, you know, you're never achieving the ultimate. And, and, you know, if, if you only competed because of the high of the, of the victory, then I don't think you'd be doing, there wouldn't be a lot of people competing. Um, and I think it's, it's more about the journey and, and what you learn about yourself. And, and there's so many lows that, you know, that happen on that journey and you've got to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and, and refocus and, and, I'm so determined from my negative results to, to drive me to, to, it motivates me to, to aspire to be better. Um, mm. And, you know, you know, if I perform poorly, it's almost fired fuel to, for me to, to actually reset and, and work out where did I go wrong? What preparation did I do wrong? How did I execute? And, and it's a driving force to get me up the next morning uh, when I look, and think about when the start line is in six weeks' time or six months' time and work backwards from there saying, right, what just happened then is never going to happen again and I'm going to get myself in the best preparation. And that's a, it's a different take on from what you've just said, Jules, but it, it's more in, in line with what I feel is the driving force for, for you know, what we do, what we love to do. And, and at the end of the day, as long as I've performed to my best ability, then I, the low – it's there's no longer a low, it, you know. It, it, it's hard mm. to talk in highs and lows. Um, I just think the journey is a high in itself, and if you if you can actually execute on race day or whatever you're aspiring to, I, I just think you're a winner anyway. Um, um, and you know that's kind of what gets me motivated uh, day in day out. I think because you know when you get to you know sixty plus. It, you know, you think, well, you've been doing this since you were 18, um, in some cases since you were 12. Uh, you know, how do you keep fronting up for another training session? Um, well, it, it, that's easy because I just I just compartment, compartmentalize everything um, and work backwards from my next, just, you know, my next destination point. Great, great two answers there. So, I mean, on that note and in line with kind of the Olympic spirit, um, I want to finish off this conversation by asking you, Jules, uh, what else stood out to you from um, a takeaway perspective or what stood out to you uh, in the Olympics that is worth paying attention to or worth learning, do you think? Uh, I think it's what it means to those people that have sort of been there multiple times or in some instances, you know, we, we um, you know, look and go, oh, what, what, what does it mean to Paddy Mills? Um, you know, so he's a guy that's been on multiple campaigns hasn't won a medal, and the work and preparation that goes into it for those guys um, is immense. Um, a lot of time and sacrifice away from families in the team environment. Um, but you could just see that these games, there was a real focus um, in the team, and they won all their pool games and, and came up against America and that unfortunately came up short. Um, but it would have been nice to be on the other side of the draw and, and you know, potentially meet America in the final rather than the semi-final. But um, to see, see that performance... The team spirit that would have been, you know, there was a massive gathering of the Aussie athletes back in the village watching the game, um, and that's what it is. It's an Olympic team, so you've got all the different sports come together to cheer on and, and you know, congratulate everyone. Um, there'll be a lot of people that were, you know, pumped about winning BMX because it's all part of their team, part of the Australian team. And then uh, to see the reaction of, you know, Joe Ingalls, Paddy Mills, you know, with a bronze medal around their neck, they were just over the moon. And I saw footage earlier today of, you know, a gathering of all the athletes and they're singing, you know, we come from a land down under um, in the village and Paddy Mills is in the middle of it all dancing mm. and, 
and there's all athletes sitting around and there's NBA stars, you know, Delivered over and, and you know, the likes that are, you know, in amongst all the other athletes and they're just having a good old time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the spirit that they sort of get and, they, and you don't get it anywhere else. Um, and I think the other thing was, you know, probably Andrew Gaze's reaction, um, you know, tearing up, you know, and that's over a bronze medal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, they're bloody hard to win. Um, where, you know, maybe not so hard to, certainly hard to win in, in the pool, but, Probably not as not as um, not as hard. I would mm. say. So to come away with medals in the pool and say basketball or or, or some of the other sports that are on on, on offer. Yeah, I think uh, Andrew Gaze really epitomised the feeling, didn't he? And uh, listening to his story with his, for those who don't know, his dad was you know Mister Basketball of Australia, and he started basketball back in the seventies. Lindsay Gaze and. And, you know, I, I heard him say that, you know, there was 250 registered basketballers in Australia back in the 60s and 70s and where basketball has come from from there. And, you know, Andrew's lived that as a, as a, a little kid watching his dad. Um, so, you know, you can really understand why he was so emotional to see, you know, him being in three or four Olympics himself and come fourth three times. Mm. Um and you know it, it's such such a journey, and it, another one of those examples of uh, hanging in there, and and how sweet it is when it eventually happens. And you have to be patient in in all sorts of walks of life. It, it you know it, it means more to you when you have to strive harder. I think uh, t- to get to the to the end of the of the uh, the journey. So it was it was so good to see him so vulnerable and and open up. And um, yeah, I loved it. It was that was one of the highlights for me. Uh, to see him just, it meant so much to him. And Jules, taking it back, I mean, how much did you feel the Aussie spirit competing for your country in 1996? Uh, it was it was fantastic, Geordie. I think, you know, again, it's um, you'd be heading off to compete and people didn't even know you, so whether they be a swimmer or whatnot, but they saw you were going to compete and, and they were wishing you luck. Um, you know, so it wasn't like they didn't they didn't know who I was, but... Um, and certainly when you came back or you met other athletes, um, it was very, um, uh, very tight. Um, or the number of track and field athletes that were in the stadium the night that Kathy Freeman was running the 400 in, in mm-hmm. Atlanta. Um, you know, everyone, there was lots of TV rooms that were pretty full with athletes, you know, watching and watching lots of different sports. So um, you became a bit of an expert on all the sports. And um, certainly the, I know in Atlanta the rowers were off at a different venue, so about, I think uh, 50 or 60 kilometres away, but as soon as they finished, they were all back in the village and, and getting in on the Olympic spirit. But um, that was um, uh, one of the things you take away from it. And then also the guys that you competed with and on the track and field team, you sort of still have to this day still a very, very strong bond. And I've got a picture so where I've got my ergo set up. And you know, these days we set up, we do a lot of time on the ergo, but I've only got to look up and it's a picture of as I've walked into the stadium. Um, at the opening ceremony, and that's mm. the that's the I always look at it and go, that's the moment I became an Olympian, and mm. and um, it, it's very special, and it sort of reminds me of all the hard work that I've done, and and that reminds me of why I do what I do now. Truly amazing. I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't think of anything more special than to be able to call yourself an Olympian and represent your country. And like I said at the start, you know, some people might trivialise sport that way, but I totally disagree. I think it brings the nation and the country together. We saw so many examples of that. Uh, and I think social media also compounds that effect now. You know, Stewie McSwain said in an interview after that he sees every single message from thousands of randoms, um, which just gives him so much support and belief. To finish off, Dad, did you have any other comments you wanted to make about the Olympics in general or comments towards Jules? No, it's very, we're really fortunate to have uh, have Jules on board and uh, his insights is, uh, as usual, so measured and, and you know, that that Olympic spirit is, is, is definitely strong and, uh, and epitomizes what Jules is about. And it's great to have someone with such intimate knowledge uh, still in the sport, uh, giving us some, some of his insights. So I really appreciate that, Jules. So thanks very much, mate, for being on board. Ah, pleasure. And then probably, you know, just to round out, I mean, the, I'd, I'd sort of say what we've got in the Trivalo group um, isn't dissimilar to preparing for the Olympics. You know, the, the group of athletes, um, feeding off each other's performances, whether or not it's, I've you know, never met Blair down in Tassie, but I certainly um, have raced enough against him on Zwift and sort of you feel connected. Um, and certainly, um, you know, Nick Lacandro and, and the likes that, you know, are all on, on Zwift racing. 
Um, and then the guys that we, we train against um, you know, during the week when we have our group rides on the Saturday, um, it's pretty competitive, but you feel like you're competing against a great bunch of mates and you push each other along and there's a lot of fringe benefits that we get out of that um, that you don't get anywhere else. And I think that's, that's a real training advantage that we have that um, other people don't, which keeps you motivated when, when you're in lockdown. Um, and, you know, I sort of see lockdown at the moment is it's a real advantage for us because we'll feed off each other and, yep. and our training performances won't fall away. Yeah. Every time there's a lockdown, I, I sort of think to myself, well, I know I'm going to have a really good training block. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, it. So. I love I love that you said that because when I watched that Channel 7 montage yesterday that I mentioned at the start of this episode, that was actually one of the first things I thought of was the uh, amazing um, – Trivella community that has formed through the nature of sport and it's why we are so passionate about um, Trivella coaching and what we do here and it's because the amount of friendships and networks that have been created just in Trivella alone uh, shows the power of sport and community and so I think that this is such a brilliant point and yeah. a great way to finish off so Jules thank you very much for joining us absolutely loved having this chat with you and uh, I think we'll have to make you a bit of a regular anytime there's any big athletics events on we'll get you on and have some special My comments pleasure. no Thanks. problem Anytime. Thank you, Jules. Appreciate it. Cheers, Dad. And that's it for this episode. We'll see you next time.